You're listening to the one of us.net podcast network. One of us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio based or banner ads, but on a case by case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at one of us.net at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, $5, $10, or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. returns with a special last minute before Christmas episode, just in case you're like, wait, but I got a certificate in my stocking or I expect to and I can spend it on these things that the Digital Noise Boys told me about. Well, the boys do indeed have you to, some stuff to tell you about this week that you may very well want to use that Christmas money on. Uh, joining me is John Goho Go Holson. <laughs> ho Ho Holson. Uh, is that... I've never heard you refer to us as the Noise Boys. <laughs> that was a first for me, too, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. The Digital Noise Boys. Is this, it's spelled like Boise? Like B-O-I-S-E? Yeah. I was thinking B-O-Y-Z, maybe. Ah, there we go. Get t- Let's get some t-shirts made. And then, and then cut the sleeves off of them. <laughs> They'll be like, we'll have skateboarders putting our logo on their decks. <laughs> I love them noise boys. Ooh, noise yeah. boys. Shout out. They tip me off to so many cool foreign films. <laughs> <laughs> noise boys is sponsored by Slim Jim. Snap into a Fellini. <laughs> <laughs> this arrow releases off the chain. Anyways. Okay. I, I don't know, man. I think there is funny. I'm actually having a somewhat similar but different discussion with some people right now about how like how do you monetize talking smart about pop culture (laughs) is there a way to make it adorable funny and cool but also actually be having a discussion about intelligent things that i'm not sure you have to add a puppet yeah, I, that's what I'm thinking, too, mm-hmm. or some sort of digital creation. Yeah. Anyway, my digital creation, John Golson. Welcome. How's your uh, Christmas going? It's going fine, Christopher Cox. Can I do the whole thing in a Santa voice? Can I do the, every review in, like, a, today we're talking about silent running? Can I just... <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say I'd prefer not for my own sanity and yeah. maybe yours, but, and the, to protect your voice, of course, you are a performer. Oh, yeah, my instrument. Um, yeah, Christmas <laughs> is, is going fine. I've got a little bit of, like, work, uh, they don't call it senioritis when you're at work. I still call it senioritis when you're a senior and you want to graduate. It's like I have a bunch of time off next week, but I have to work tomorrow. I have to work on Monday. So I know that tomorrow is going to be difficult because it's going to be like I'm just going to be watching the clock the whole time, <laughs> waiting <laughs> for that moment that I can uh, get my jolly on. So It's going to be like three o'clock high over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
That'll bring you back. You ever seen that one? Oh yeah, a lot of times. Yeah. yeah as a matter of fact, we review the we we reviewed last time we were together the uh, whatever that horror movie was about the cult and the uh, the Jonestown thing. Uh, the Veil. Yeah, The Veil is from the director of Three O'clock High. Yeah, it's, I like Three O'clock High. I think it's I think it's a, a really good eighties uh, teen comedy that doesn't get the praise of some of the others. I think you you reviewed it recently, didn't you, with somebody else? No, what me? No, um, okay. But yeah, we, uh, it is the redheaded stepchild of those type of movies where you're like, oh, it's still good, but uh, like it's definitely the redheaded stepchild of all the the classic high school movies of the '80s. Whereas one of the movies we're talking about today is sort of the redheaded stepchild of the real genius, Back to the Future's weird sciences of the '80s. Yeah, but we'll get to that. Actually, that was. I was proud of that, that being a thing. So I just wanted to get it out of the way early, but we're going to start with something that I know that John and I both being old farts, totally dorked out on. And that is the complete box set upgraded really well. Like who actually put this much work into upgrading in great sound and great picture, the original television show, Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Cause well, the answer is Kino Lober did. Cause they put together every episode of the, you know, it's only two seasons, but it's still a decent amount of episodes uh, over nine discs, the original movie, good amount of bonus features, Man, I was so excited to get this thing because, I mean, I was a dork for Buck Rogers growing up. Like, every time some kid makes a Twiggy joke and they don't really understand what they're doing. <laughs> because they saw it on Family Guy? Yeah, right? They're like, okay, you don't, you, yeah. you don't even know. But I'll tell you, watching this, and I start off going like, okay, I'll watch the movie and then maybe one or two episodes. Like, you do that thing where you Google online and see what are considered the best episodes. And mm-hmm. a lot of them were front-loaded. Front like, oh, the first, like, five episodes are totally some of the best. I'm like, I guess I'm going that route. And before you know it, I was, like, three discs in going, wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm just watching through this whole show. And my biggest takeaway immediately was, like, in a in a really enjoyable way, this is, like, a... 80s softcore porn that never gets to the porn. It is very, um, it is, you know, they, there's a specific time in TV that they talk about like jiggle vision. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever heard that term applied. It was like Three's Company, Charlie's Angels, basically like, can we put women in skin tight outfits so that anybody flipping the channel will, 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 it will give them pause and make them go, oh, girl. And, I, and you know, now that I think about it, I've never thought about it until I've said it, but it really happened, I guess, right as basic cable was first rearing its head. So I think they were trying to give people an incentive to like, no, no, the networks can also be uh, titillating, <laughs> I think may have been the may have been the impetus here. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know about the timing per se. I don't remember. I mean, I know we got cable right before MTV launched because that was one of the reasons we were like, mom, mom, dad, dad, get us cable, we want cable, we want cable, we want cable. And like, fine. So we were sitting there waiting for that astronaut on the moon with the flag to pop up. I was watching day one, saw a video, killed the radio star as it aired. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But Buck Rogers was the thing we watched. I think I may have like popped out my first pubic hair when I saw Aaron Gray on the screen. I'm not really sure about the timing there, but it's entirely possible. I I was super into the show. I had, it was weird that it, this was kind of the, the, uh, like, what do we do with the leftover money and props and sets from Battlestar Galactica project? Cause Galactica had come out in wake of star Wars was a modest hit, but never really met their expectations. Like 
what if we take all this props and shit we already have from this and do it for less money, but add lots more sex? And that's what Buck Rogers basically is. More comedic, because Battlestar Galactica got pretty fucking dark a lot of the time. Mm. But, you know. Uh, and honestly, when I've, and recently having rewatched a lot of the original Battlestar Galactica episodes, I'd kind of rather rewatch Buck Rogers. <laughs> I couldn't get into Battlestar in the same way when I was a kid. Like, I liked all the spaceships and stuff, and I had actually a lot of Battlestar toys. But I was really only interested in the Cylons and the aliens. Buck Rogers, I was interested in Buck. Yeah. Um, so, and and the stories were more... I think the humor helps a lot. They're, sim- they're simpler stories, um, so they're easier to jump into. And, yeah, I, I watched this with my family as a kid, you know, growing up. Like... Um, I've owned it on DVD before, uh, and mm. actually, and I forgot, I found it in a box after, after I watched a few on Blu-ray, I actually found my old Buck Rogers DVDs, um, and it's interesting to revisit something and, like, there's, you know, there's certain things that you have, like, or nostalgia supersedes quality. I think Buck Rogers by a hair, nostalgia supersedes actual quality i was really hoping to get my girlfriend to like sit down and like get into it and watch episode after episode after episode did not necessarily pan out that way she didn't grow up with it so i i I do think it's a case of like there's a little bit of you had to be there now if you like 80s retro futurism it's great for that because it's like you have like rainbow stripes and disco dancing and like very um, very sci-fi by way of the late 70s costuming. Um, yeah. All that stuff is a visual treat. I, I like the... One of the cost-cutting measures that I thought was funny and it struck me episode after episode was how sets are often a black void with objects set around. So, like, <laughs> yeah. they have, like, physical props like computers or ships or whatever in the foreground and then the background is just black, like a drop curtain. Like, there's no, there's no wall. There's no, like, you don't see the inside of the hangar deck. It's just yeah. black. Yeah, there's all so many, if you're looking for it, and you could have a drinking game out of it, like cost-cutting measures in this show that are funny in retrospect. I mean, the way they are in the original Star Trek series, where you're like, uh-huh, look at that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that makes me laugh, as I mentioned earlier, all the stuff from Battlestar Galactica, oh, wow, there's a lot of it. Like, down to just, like, the, the sequence of what it looks like when a ship leaves, a smaller ship, like a fighter leaves the main ship. It's just the footage from Battlestar Galactica, that weird three light thing as it comes out. It's the same thing. And, you know, if there's a ship exploding in space, expect to see it 30 times. Yeah. You know, that same exact shot. <laughs> you know, even sometimes in the same dogfight. And there's a lot of dogfights in this show. It's cartoonish, but it's appealing. It has that old, yeah. like, you know, people talk about Lucas being influenced by Star Wars to create his own version of a serial. And Buck Rogers maintains that, like, serial feeling in that it's a little cartoony. Again, it's got... It's not... I wouldn't say it's tongue-in-cheek, but it's... um, It's cheeky. (laughs) It's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I think. I mean, they definitely knew what they were doing was for shits and grins, right? Like, I never got the feeling, especially in the first season, that anybody was, like, taking this overly seriously. Now, reportedly... There were a lot of problems between the first and second season. Gil Gerard, who even to his own admittance was like, I was kind of a prick back then, who reportedly today is not at all. It's like a, this sweet, 
humble guy, but was uh, saying, look, uh, this should be taken more seriously. We should do more plots about real things and maybe not be so irreverent. And the second season is arguably not as good as the first season, although it it, it does set up, it almost is a to- like a reboot of the show, how much it changes things around and literally goes from a, we are on Earth and we're protecting the Earth against in- aliens to, hey, we're an explorer ship going out and exploring other worlds and introducing the much beloved character of Hawk, who everyone seemed to really like as one of the uh, played by Tom Christopher, who's sort of a, a a bird being who becomes one of Buck's best friends. He's the Spock of the show, if you will. This reminds me of something. So we talked a little bit about like the shoddiness of the sets and stuff. Did you notice that Tiger Man kept changing between two actors in the pilot? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, they just thought we wouldn't notice. They, like, swap out the guy that's Tiger Man. See the scene? Anyway, sorry. I just, I was just reminded of that when you were bringing up Hawk. Yeah. There's a lot of switcheroos like that, especially between the first movie and later. Like, some characters were just ended up being played by different people. Like, Henry Silva is one of the main bad guys in the movie. But then I don't remember who it is who who took over that role uh, later on. But there's a lot of just... Like, wow, look who it is moments in here for for actors who come on to play guest starring roles like big, you know, they're one of the major characters. Like you get Peter Graves, Jamie Lee Curtis, Marky Post, Dorothy Stratton, Richard Mall, Jerry Orbach, Gary Coleman, Jack Palance, Sid Haig, Vera Miles, Buster Crabb, who played Buck Rogers in the original 1930s serial, uh, and Cesar Romero, Frank Gorshin, Roddy McDowell, Julie Newmar. I mean, there's... This is kind of a wealth of really awesome people from this period, or maybe we're kind of reaching the twilight of their years for some, their careers for some of them in this period, coming out and playing over the top ridiculous characters. And I mean, I just never got tired of watching this thing. I was like, this is a pure joy of silliness. And you're right. It it tips over that. Like, it's almost certainly a large part of that is my nostalgia for it. But there have been other things I feel that way about that I'm like, yeah, this isn't so easy to watch now. And this was just like eating pieces of candy, man. You're just like, yeah, these just slide on down. What's with serendipity lately, too? So they just announced a Buck Rogers relaunch? Yes, they did. Like, so I watch Buck Rogers and they just announced a relaunch. I've been watching Night Court on my own. They just announced a relaunch. I'm like, am I? What's happening cosmically that's gone? <laughs> I mean, I assume there's some amount of timing of people with their ears to the ground of going like, oh, they're 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 working on possibly doing a Buck Rogers relaunch. We should spend the money for the rights to release the original series now Mm -hmm. in case it happens. That type of thing. You know, I don't know. I know I can't speak as to why you were rewatching Night Court. That's inexplicable but not that it's bad i just that's a real coincidence that was crazy to me anyways yeah 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 i i'm a big fan of that's why i'm a big marky post fan from the original night court i thought she was great and i was like so thrilled that she appeared on on buck rogers as well yeah hooray marky anyway uh there's a lot of stuff we've been going on for a while on buck rogers because i think we both had a lot of fun with this thing uh there's a it, like I said, it's a, it's a bunch of discs. The video looks terrific. Uh-huh. It's um, done in, uh, for the feature film, 185-1 aspect ratio, which was actually released in theaters, believe it or not. And then a television ratio, 133-1 for most of the rest of the episodes. But the transfers are terrific. They look great in 1080p. The audio as well has been uh, brought up to a 2.0 audio mix. 
and it sounds pretty damn good. Uh, and then there's special features, which are largely audio commentaries here. A lot of the episodes have audio commentaries with TV, a variety of TV film uh, historians. And then there's an interview with Aaron Gray, an interview with Tom Christopher. And sadly, no interview with Gil Gerard, but apparently there was some complication with like timing with, with getting him. I hope it wasn't health reasons. Gil's still alive and it's all reports does interviews relatively often. So I can't think of any reason other than, oh shit, maybe he's sick that he didn't participate in this. But I also got the feeling that they got this sucker together as fast as they could. And <laughs> maybe because like we were talking about, oh shit, there might be a new reboot. We better get this series out. Let's move on to the next thing, which is another from this period sci-fi thing, only it's a movie from 1972 directed by Douglas Trumbull. In fact, the directorial uh, debut who before this had done, uh, who had done the photographic effects on 2001, A Space Odyssey, later went on to do Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and others. Silent Running is about Bruce Dern, who plays one of a group of uh, astronauts who are on this giant spaceship attacked with the, like geodesic greenhouse domes. And the rest of the guys are basically frat boys. And he is like the serious hippie guy who's like, oh, I'm the, I'm the one who deals with all the, uh, the plants and making sure everything's okay. And no one else seems to really give a shit. The reason all this is happening is because plant life on Earth is becoming extinct. Uh-oh, it's one of those 70s ecological hippie films. Yes, it is. <laughs> and he finds himself wondering what to do when he is told, oh, um, like, we're not going to do the previous plan. So what you need to do is destroy all those domes with plants in them. Just literally nuke them, jettison them off, and then come back and we're going to use you for commercial service, the ship. Uh, and he says, fuck that, and decides that he's going to do whatever it takes to basic if it includes killing his his crewmates to keep on going with what he's been doing and there's a bunch of little service robots that kind of become his friends or at least he anthropomorphizes them into friends you know john i remember seeing this when i was a kid and going this is not star wars this is boring i do not care for it and i have never watched it again since and my memories of it confused what it was actually about totally but I'm like, okay, obviously I that's the report of a little kid of a movie that was more of an adult-pointed science fiction movie, mm -hmm. see, as opposed to Star Wars. And I'm like, let's give this another shot. Arrow is putting out this Blu-ray of this uh, thing, which, you know, they always do, regardless of how you feel about the movies that they're putting out. They do such a great job putting the packages together. And I'm excited. I'm like, okay, 70s, Bruce Dern, I'm in. Full uh, report. I kind of got bored watching it this time too. <laughs> yeah, this keep, this is the movie that keeps coming up on like underrated sci-fi classics. You always see it on lists of those or in books that talk about science fiction movies. And so it was kind of a white whale for me growing up. And then I didn't see it until uh, maybe when it first came out on DVD. I want to say it's been about 20 years ago. You know, I was grown um, and didn't really, it didn't click with me. I didn't really care for it. I was actually looking forward to this revisit because I was like, oh, okay, I, I kind of missed the boat, I guess, because I know it's highly regarded. It's won awards. Um, and so I, I was sort of excited in a way, like kind of like I'm going to reevaluate this and I bet I walk away really liking it. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're the same as me then. I think it's got a great 30 minutes. Uh, at the very beginning, I just think that the back half, when it's Bruce Dern by himself puttering around the the greenhouse, is just 
there's nothing going on. Like it's that that the final hour of the film is just there, there's just nothing happening. Dirt. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> you know, I, I think the first thirty minutes certainly promises something with some kind of you can keep all your ecological messaging, but I think that they're I think the split of the movie it would have that they it's not balanced right. I wish that there was more of the conflict and suspense of the first half and less of the seventies folk singer montages in the in the second oh, half. There's like, okay, Jesus, did you make this movie for my mom? There's so much Joan Baez in here for no apparent yeah. reason at all. And and yeah, those type of montages and just even when it's like before that happens, it's like these things. Oh, look at the the bad space guys being assholes and dr- driving their little go karts around like children. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what? I think this movie made me not like hippies. <laughs> <laughs> if I saw this and I was undecided about ecological things, I might turn into a Reaganite upon watching this movie in the 80s because you're like, man, Bruce Dern is kind of a dick. Like, come on, man. We get it. You're right. But you also don't have to be such an asshole about it. It does make you appreciate contortionists. Do you know how they did the robots? It was actual uh, amputees who got in there. It's the guys walking with their hands and they're like crammed in a box with their hands as the feet. They're, uh, I just saw this. Uh, Three drones are played by four bilateral amputees. Mm-hmm. People who had been born without lower limbs or had had their limb lower limbs removed. That's crazy. oh, I thought they were tucking their legs in the boxes. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I just knew that. I knew that they were they were hand walking, and I was like, why, why, <laughs> why <laughs> did you design this robot in such a way where it requires someone to walk on their hands? Um, yeah, I, I I couldn't figure that. Also, the robots are kind of devoid of. Personality. personality they're sort of proto yeah. r2d2s and they're not but they yeah they, it's they're all it's all about what bruce dern like gives them as far as personality which is to say i might as well be talking to like my ipod mm-hmm. you know like and it, to imbue it with personality because they don't have any it's just kind of like oh really okay well then you should do this oh don't worry little friend and you're like okay that's all bruce dern it's not the there's no yeah, I, I, there's some really beautiful shots in here. And if you like Joan Baez, you're in for a treat because there's a lot of it. But I just think this is dry. Its message is kind of confusing. So what are you saying? Like, we need to be convinced that we should, like, make sure not all vegetation dies on planet Earth. Yeah, I think we're all on the same page to some degree there. But, I mean, it's just that it's not specifically addressing the issue of the importance of it. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like... Oh well, what everybody what we did was bad, and so now this is what we're dealing with. I'm like, yeah, we we know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it it holds up very well over time. I think, it, it, and may not, you know. I mean, I was just a kid at the time; I didn't care for it. But like, you're right; a lot of the critics raved about it when it came out. Yeah, yeah. May have been just because there just wasn't anything like it at that point. I don't know. Not a lot of of like non corny sci-fi was being produced for the theaters so yeah like, maybe so i mean you know stuff that's very adult i'm trying to think of when this came out we're talking post 2001 pre-star wars pretty yeah. much your sci-fi are the planet of the apes sequels 
which yeah. are, which are better regarded now than they were at the time when they were seen as like matinee junk back in the day, yeah. especially the late yeah. Planet of the Apes sequels. So have something coming along and have like, oh, it's got Bruce Dern and it's got ecological messaging. And I'm, I'm sure that that was much more of a hot button in, in the 70s. It, not that we don't care about ecology. Like, honestly, if they, if they remade this or released it as like a TV miniseries or something that was a remake of it, I would probably still be interested in it. I just think the movie is is dull. Yeah. Uh, but not everyone agrees, and they put a bunch of extras together for here, including two different audio commentaries, one of which features Douglas Trumbull and Bruce Dern. There is isolated music and effects track. There's a new interview with film music historian Jeff Bond, who talks about the score, which was by PDQ Bach, oddly enough, because I always think of him as like a... a classical satirist so it seems like a weird choice but um there's a new visual essay by writer and filmmaker john spiro who takes a look at the development of the screenplay then there's some archival special features which actually are add up to about an hour and a half worth of time about the making of and then a conversation with bruce dern and then the insert booklet a really nice case so i mean it's a great package for a movie i just that does nothing for me really so uh, now that movie I mentioned earlier, that redheaded stepchild of a certain other eighties movies, like back to the future, real genius, of weird science. That movie is my science project, John. I didn't actually see this when it came out in theaters. I, so I don't have the nostalgia attached to this film. Like a, a lot of people do. I mean, we reviewed last starfighter not that long ago. And I was like, I did see this in theaters and I don't have the nostalgia for it. Some people do, although I do think it's charming, but maybe not as much as people were like, yes, last starfighter. I got a tattoo. Oh my God. But my science project. No, none of that. It is a bottom dollar budgeted. Let's deal with some of the same sort of sci-fi comedy stuff that those movies did. Uh, it definitely didn't perform anywhere near as well as those films, both critically or in terms of people going to see. It was not a success. It peaked at 14. But somehow it ended up getting the qualification of being a cult classic. I got to admit, I was really curious to watch this thing. I think I saw it. I'm pretty sure I have seen this once before, but I mean, I don't remember a thing about it. So it must not have hit much of a of a uh, mark on me there. But the idea is that it, uh, high school kids uh, found in a hidden fallout shelter from a leftover military base, the, this kid who's kind of like the bad kid, but he's hooked up with a good kid who's a bookworm girl who they're tentatively on a date and they're looking for something to use for their science project at school. Figure, hey, there's an old thing. Maybe we can find something there. We could just say, look, there's our science project. And he finds, you know, it's basically Roswell shit hit very poorly hidden down there. So he finds this glowy gun thing. Uh, they hook it up to power. They find that it just sort of seeks, seeps in power from whatever's around it. Like lights turn off, batteries die, whatever. Once they get this thing fully charged, they find out that it is actually with the, sort of the advice as well of their uh, ex hippie science teacher, Dennis Hopper, which was, this was his first big film return after his break from be drying out from drugs and alcohol. Uh, and even that he had to fight to get this role reportedly. <laughs> uh, I think he's friends with the producer. And it causes problems with basically opening these portals to all these other times from the future to the past. And they have to negotiate the high school only with like cavemen and aliens and historical characters appearing. And that is my science project. It doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> if you're looking for science in this movie, there isn't any. It's 
goofy. I guess there's a certain amount of charm. I I feel like maybe the creators of Bill and Ted saw this movie and went, you know what would have made a much better idea of sort of where this is headed, but doesn't actually go for is what ended up being Bill and Ted's. I, it's fine. I, I couldn't, I wouldn't glare at someone who's like, I love that movie. But for me, I just kind of like, there's a reason this thing didn't perform very well. Cause it's really shoddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It stinks. Um, <laughs> this movie stinks. Like, I'm not going to dance around it. This stinks. I, uh, I had never, I thought I had never seen it. And I had actually, I, I just watched Real Genius a few months ago for the first time all the way from start to finish. And I was like, man, I, I, there's still like an outlier. I still haven't seen my science project. And as I was watching this, it's about like 30 minutes in, I was that kind of like vague memory of like, no, I've seen this either on cable or I did rent it, but I've seen this. I just don't remember anything about it. Hey, it's because it's not memorable. Because it doesn't do anything with its premise. Like, the whole thing is that they have this government thing that's going to unravel time and people from different time periods are going to show up. Really, it that stuff is handled like a freaking, you know, $10 haunted house where yeah. they go into their school and then they run through Vietnam and they run through, like, you know, it's it's so... It's so crappy. It doesn't do anything with its premise. It's It's... The humor that does exist in it outside of its premise is completely witless. It was not a good movie. Like it's, no. I don't, I don't like it. I'm very open minded towards movies that portray some kind of sense memory of my childhood, even if it's something that yeah. I didn't see when I was a kid. If it if it captures like uh, I remember these times. Um, then I'm very receptive to that. And I didn't like this movie at all. I was shocked at how um, how <laughs> fruitless this whole thing was. Um, there, yeah, there's a reason why... And this is a Disney movie. Like, this was, this was paid for with Disney money. And they have not been aggressive in re-releasing this to the point no. that they've let somebody else now have it for home video release. No. Um, yeah. It, it, it's... Uh, it, it's- clear that they blew their entire budget largely on one effect which is a t-rex sequence that i will say genuinely looked pretty good Mm -hmm. because after you've seen everything else in this movie and how terrible it looks the moment you're like oh shit you hear a dinosaur roar you're like if they even deign to show the dinosaur it's gonna look terrible and then you're like oh wow they actually built an animatronic dinosaur holy shit it looks pretty good it's pretty good that's about that's about it. I mean, it's very amusing seeing Dennis Hopper, who's this is like a prequel to that movie Flashback. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, with, with Kiefer with Sutherland. Him and Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. So in both of them, he's kind of playing a take on himself. And like, okay, this could very well be like, if you want to like recontextualize it as that, maybe it's a little more enjoyable. Not that anyone remembers the movie Flashback either. But uh the worst part about this, and that's saying something, is Fisher Stevens, who I been in a lot of stuff I really like, a lot of stuff I really don't like too, but he plays the best friend, who is this wildly offensive character. <laughs> it's just the worst kind of misogynist piece of shit, and we're supposed to find it oh so charming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's your friend. Go, bitches, am I right? He's that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's not even a lot really to save this in terms of like bonus features i mean it's 
vaguely fixed up. I didn't think it really looked all that great, but there's a new audio commentary by Mike McFadden and Kat Ellinger discussing the film. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, the best you can discuss it is like what went wrong. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, yeah. let's move on to our next one, which is indisputably a classic and that is mad max the original mad max don't get confused because i was actually saying on facebook oh, i'm watching mad max and people are like i love fury road i'm like ah kids no mad max the original film that came out in 1979 in australia by george miller starring mel gibson in one of his first roles as mad max rockatansky i think it's the only one where they actually say his last name uh, and it is not like any of the other Mad Max films at all. I would say this is a 4K release that they spent a lot of money making look tremendously good. Because yeah. this is one of those fix-ups that, I mean, I saw the previous Blu-ray release and it was kind of, it looked good, but it was scratchy and had a lot of grain. This one looks like it could be a new production that people are dressing retro for. Yeah. It's such a decent, like, beautiful job at fixing it up but here set in a future australia imagine if like the next film which is the road warrior imagine if uh that's like 20 years after this i don't know for sure what the timing is supposed to be but you have to kind of picture that because this is just as civilization is starting to break apart you know like now <laughs> it's like oil is starting to become in short supply and there's starting to be street gangs that are, you know, because the police aren't really paying attention and, and they themselves when they are tend to be unreasonably violent. And Max is like the cop who's about ready to quit. And they bribe him with a new badass car to stay like, okay, you can have this awesome car if you stay. He's like, yeah, right. Fine. But even so he's doesn't want to be there. And he is, fallen in love he has a kid he wants to focus on that and he ends up getting disillusioned when after deals going on with this gang that are running loose he gets kind of disillusioned with you know the police and goes i'm out i'm done but the gang run into him and uh well you know revenge all that sort of stuff mad max is a classic but if you go into it expecting it to be like the other mad max films you're going to be really surprised because it is not yeah the the um it's interesting coming back to this i i had seen all of the mad max films around the time that fury road came out i i've my history with them is i saw mad max and road warrior when road warrior was first released uh went to the drive-in and saw a double feature when i was tiny kid um and this, i didn't revisit it until fury road and then <clears throat> and then again now so i've only seen it like three times it's interesting to watch it now i think some some movies succeed on the energy or vibe of a movie more than on individual elements or like story you look at something like beyond thunderdome which is full of story like it has world building and war and like all kinds of story, but just doesn't have the energy. And you look at something like Mad Max, it's really story light. There's not a lot to it. There's also a lot that you're kind of left to fill in the blanks in your head and go, well, I guess that's what cops are now. And I guess this is post-apocalyptic, but nothing is really spelled out for you. Yet the energy and the, the pulse of the movie feels lively in a way that, um, that, takes care of those problems just fine. Um, 
Yeah, and the, and in terms of the 4K transfer itself, like this is a really great example of how to do an old movie in 4K so that you still retain film grain. Like there was still grain on the screen, but <laughs> it was it was a fantastic transfer. Like it looked, um, yeah, it looked, <laughs> it looked terrific. You know, there's so much 4k that comes out now that it's always when one can give you pause or like kind of blow you away. It's, it's that much extra special. And this was yeah. one where I just kept going, man, that looks good, man. That looks good. Like the whole time I was watching it. Man, I mean, they good. even, they did the audio as well. There's a five, one track on here for people who have that. I mean, I know some hardcore audio files would be disappointed. They didn't do a seven, two, but you know, upgrading this to five, one is pretty good as well as two uh, alternate mono tracks or I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Mono tracks as well. Uh, and you know, a decent amount of bonus features, like there's the archival commentary uh, for the previous edition by art director John Dowding, cinematographer David Egby, special effects artist Chris Murray, and filmmaker Tim Ridge that had it on various other previous version home video releases of this. And then there is a new video Im interview with George Miller called Road Rage, where for 31 minutes he talks about like what was going on, what led him to create this movie, what built everything up with his childhood to how did this movie come to be that ended up defining his career in many ways. Uh, there's interviews, archival interviews with Mel Gibson, Joanne Samuel, and cinematographer David Egby. There is a archival Mel Gibson, The Birth of a Superstar. There's Mad Max, The Film Phenomenon, which is another archival which looks at what happened on after from this. There's an archival episode of Trailers from Hell with writer-director Joss Ol Olsen talking about this. And then copies of all the original trailers and teasers and what have you. And I think that they just... There's a lot you could deep dive into this film about the culture of the 70s and how this still, I think, kind of works today. It feels almost oddly prescient in some ways that of the apocalypse films, the post-apocalyptic films, this one is the one that feels most grounded and realistic because it, you know, civilization hasn't totally collapsed yet. But knowing what you do with the future series, you're like, well, it is about to. And this is the last gasp of civility. You know, it's it it definitely feels current. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, I think this is kind of a I think I like this film more now than I did even when I originally saw it. Yeah, it's it's got some uh that it still has some stunts that hold up so well. The the opening car chase is still like a, a really a really bright spot. And I'm I, now I'm like, I'm pumped for road warrior. Like when road, when road warrior 4k comes out, like that's, a, that's a must have based on the quality of this Mad Max 4k. And I think a lot of people know this, but the main bad guy here, toe cutter was played by Hugh keys burn who sadly just passed away like less than a week ago, but he also played, ended up playing a Mortan Joe, the main bad guy in Mad Max Fury road, mm -hmm. which is a cool little crossover. He's not supposed to be the same character, but it was like, I mean, it's not like you would recognize him. Plus, in a Mortan Joe, he's wearing a gas mask the whole time. So, uh, surprised Christopher Nolan didn't direct that one. <laughs> what? Anyway, let's move on to our next film, which is from Epic, and that is Sleepless Beauty. I'm sorry about this one, John. I genuinely am. Uh, <laughs> I... There is one thing about Sleepless Beauty that I think is kind of great. 
And unfortunately, you have to sit through the rest of Sleepless Beauty to get to the scenes where it takes place. And uh, if I'd known, I just would have watched the bonus feature that just shows all of that footage. But it's about a it's a Russian film about a young woman named Mila who is kidnapped by an unknown organization called Recreation. She's in a chair in a big empty room. Uh, she hears them talk to her through a loudspeaker. They keep setting weird rules. There's a guy who comes in there who's wearing a mask, so she can't identify him either. They keep saying, you absolutely cannot sleep. You have to do anything you're told. And quickly you realize that you know they're trying to figure out a way to crack her mind to brainwash her. But you realize as a viewer, oh, this is Russian torture porn, isn't it? And the answer is... Yes, it is. This is just one scene following the next scene of various ways of torturing a young woman. And if that sounds like your cup of tea, well, here you go with Sleepless Beauty. I found it kind of repulsive through most of it, but there is one thing I really liked about this, and that is... One of the they keep putting this VR helmet on her, and there are these animation sequences that are like, you know how Alien used lots of like the designs of H.R. Giger for the designs of all the alien creatures in the ships. Well, people forget that Giger also did a lot of weird, gross sex stuff as well with like his style, like, like boobs and dicks. This is like animation based on that is what it looks like. But it's actually like if Terry Gilliam in his Monty Python animation days was doing cutouts of Giger's sex work, what it would look like. And it is kind of fascinating and, and neato in a super gross out sort of way. Yeah. This director did a movie that was all about aesthetics before this one called three, the ritual. Um, mm -hmm. And th I liked that one marginally better than this one, I th I think his deal is he just based on now two films from him. I think his deal is that he gets the the seed of an idea that's a visual idea and then builds a film around that. It would not surprise me to find out that that's the case with that animated stuff that he basically worked backwards to figure out how to accommodate a story that would that would contain that. Um, mm. This I got it. Like I I I. <laughs> I get the movie. I'm like, I, I get what you're doing. I understand. It is one of those, like, um, it, it's horror. It's not scary. It's horror. That's how much punishment can one person take leading to these, you know, hallucinatory sequences. And, and, and as far as like the purpose of it, I was like, I, I get, I get what's going on. I get what he's trying to do here. It did. It, it didn't work for me. It was not, yeah. um, it was not a movie that I, I enjoyed, but I, you know, and the same token, I appreciated enough to go, this might be somebody else's cup of tea. It's not my cup of tea, but you know, if, if anything we've said sounds interesting, maybe you'll like it. I wouldn't push hard on that though. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> recommend it, but if, especially, you know, you talked about the Terry Gilliam, I, I've, I thought there was a little like Hieronymus Bosch in there as well. So if that sure. kind of like avant-garde, very um, disturbing sexual animation sounds interesting to you, then it's a great showcase for that. Um, but the movie's just so-so at best. Damning it with almost no praise. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not incompetently made. It's just... It's just malicious. It's not certainly not scary. If you're looking for horror-type things, it's not scary. It's just... Like, oh, let's make this woman dug, dig around in a bucket full of, like, human remains and, and make her imagine that, like, 
she's guilty for, I mean, really in a way that I found deeply dis, uh, disturbing in a gross out, gross ways sort of way. Oh, you had an abortion? Well, let's keep talking about your dead baby and how you murdered it and how it prayed for life and you're the killer. And I'm like, this is gross. I really feel gross for watching it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did not care for this at all. Well, let's talk about our next one, which is also very grotesque, but is very well made, and that is Possessor, or in this case, with the new 4K that's being released, Possessor Uncut. Okay, it's like a minute of extra footage, but whatever. Uh, this is direct, written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg, and yes, that is indeed the son of David Cronenberg, who had previously has done the film that I thought was kind of underrated, antiviral, mm-hmm. uh, but this is his only his second other feature film that he's made. And it's weird because Antiviral was not wildly well-received or even really marketed at all. It just kind of disappeared. I do, once again, think it's an interesting little film while we're seeking out. But this one, they're marketing the shit out of. And that, you know, might be, I think uh, this was Neon, correct? Who was who was uh, doing the theatrical oh, gosh, release of this? gosh, that sounds right, but I don't know. Well, uh, either way, Wellgo is handling the 4K home release here of this thing. And uh, we did, the, I was on the review for this one, so I've already discussed this. So I'm going to let John describe what the plot is of this one. Oh, the plot is that there's assassins that, uh, <laughs> I don't think I realized the, the similarity to Assassin's Creed until I just started describing the plot that, okay, there are these assassins, but they're virtual and they have to enter this like virtual bed in order to take over the mind of someone and then go assassinate. I'm like, oh, that's the Assassin's Creed video game, like straight up. <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't put two and two together. But anyways, so yeah, there's, there are these, um, there's this like device that lets people basically possess someone in order to carry out a hit. And the, Hit woman in question um, is the blind. The lines between who she is as a person and who she possesses are starting to blur. Um, she's losing her sense of self while she's sent out on this this mission to kill. Um, it is a an excessively violent movie, um, mm. and I. You know, I'm I'm going to be in the minority on this because I know that Possessor is lighting a lot of critics on fire, but I think the whole thing is kind of empty. Um, I personally find the movie a little shallow. I think that it's and it's sort of just an art house hitman movie that's super duper violent, and I did not find that it's it's deeper things about identity. Or some of the things that it was trying to do really, honestly, worked for me in any particular way. And I liked antiviral. I was all I'm all about antivirals. Um, but this this just wasn't it wasn't my bag or something. I I just by the time I got to the end of it, I kept waiting for some kind of um I don't want to say payoff because that makes it sound like it doesn't have a satisfying conclusion it definitely draws to a conclusion but i was kind of hoping for that moment of like connection where i was like okay now it's got me or oh wow like yeah and and that never happened it was just i i think it's bold for him to make a film that has characters that are so unlikable because i don't think that the protagonist when she's herself i don't find her likable and when she's possessing the the sort of the main character 
um, also not very likable. And, you know, they, they, a lot of people very much stick to this idea that movies have to have likable protagonists. This movie definitely does not and also doesn't give a shit about it. Um, and so I can appreciate that, but it this just wasn't for me. I'm really disappointed in you, John. I was looking forward to us having a spirited disagreement on this one. Oh. <laughs> I kind of agree with you. I think this is a beautiful looking film. I mean, it's ugly, but intentionally so. But there's a lot of style. There's style to burn here. Cronenberg definitely visually is an impressive director, but I found it as you said, somewhat empty, relatively soulless, certainly kind of derivative of other things we've seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely derivative of his father, that's for sure, which I don't have less of a problem with because for some reason his father now just wants to make these really boring, <laughs> like, discussion pastoral films. I don't know what happened with David. I, I, think, with, I think with Brandon, the things that... He, there, he's only two in, but the one thing that he displays more than his father i think is is a, a there's definitely like an undercurrent of fear of uh technology mm -hmm. and how that affects identity which is it's in his dad's movies as well but i think the tech in his dad's movies is sort of just a um it's just, it's like a means to get to an end it's sort of like oh the teleportation chamber in the fly is a means to an end uh yeah. television station the drum is a means to an end Plus, but they I, all tend to have an organic aspect to mm -hmm. them in his dad's movies. Like, the yeah. tech is sort of techno-organic stuff, and, and here that's not really played yeah. with as much. I think Brandon's deal is more about the actual future of tech. And, like, could mm -hmm. we get viruses from celebrities? Could we actually see a world where we can transfer our consciousness into someone else? And what would that do to us? I think his tech is much more... His, his tech, as it's incorporated in his films, is much more about the idea of the tech itself... And not just as a as a thing to get the plot from point A to point B. Uh, you said in regards to all the characters being unlikable and being fine with it. I am too, but there needs to be something that keeps you going. Because I'm going to lose interest in characters when you don't... They're all bad people. They're not charismatic or likable in any sort of way. And there's not enough interesting sort of things, fast moving things happening between them to keep me involved, at least on a plot level. Because like I said, it was like this movie kind of sets up what it is and then that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I heard some critics saying, oh, this rich depth of characters. I'm like, where? <laughs> I didn't see that. I mean, they're all kind of, well, this is who they are. And, you know, I like the actors involved. Andrea Riseborough, I think, is is a fine actress who's done some really great stuff. She plays the lead character here. Christopher Abbott is kind of the main guy being possessed who I've always found, like, what's the guy's name from uh, Game of Thrones who's the main character on there with the black curly hair? Uh, don't ask me Game of Thrones trivia. Uh, anyway, the guy's the never, main guy never there. never seen it. He always seemed like a knockoff version of him to me. But anyway, uh, Tuppence Middleton plays a small role in here. Sean Bean has a small but important part towards the end. Jennifer Jason Lee, who obviously was a regular for uh, David, but she's here in a role that should be better than it is. Like, I'm like, that's Jennifer Jason Lee. You have the chance to make her the most interesting and key part of this whole thing. But she's always just kind of floating around the sidelines. I, at the end, was like, that was really interesting to watch, but I never felt like I got fully involved in yeah. it. But uh, I think we're in the minority, though, John. Like, most critics and most people I've talked to just love the shit out of this thing. We so. really are. And I was actually a little sad because I was like, I I, I knew that I, w I had an awareness after watching it that I was in the minority. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm going to speak my piece. 
But again, not knowing how you felt about it, I was like, Chris might, this might be one of those times where Chris and I feel completely different. So I'm, I'm a little surprised to find out that we're on the same page. We are on the same page. There's, uh, you know, I mean, this is in 4K, so it's going to look great on one of those players, but it also comes with a Blu-ray and a digital copy. There's three short deleted scenes. There's three behind-the-scenes sequences that add up to about 34 minutes or so. There's uh, the green band teaser, the red band teaser, and the uncut trailer. That's about it. So it's not like a really a huge amount of extra features, but it's there. Uh, this feels like a movie that... You know, 10 years from now, Arrow will re-release with like a wealth of bonus features for people who really loved it. But for now, this is what you get. And uh, it's not terrible. But let's move on to our next thing, which is the long-awaited, the ultimate team-up between two of the greatest action heroes of all time, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jackie Chan, on the screen together in the film Iron Mask for about 10 minutes of the running time. <laughs> of course <laughs> I was like I, the moment I saw the trailer for this which was 90% Jackie Chan and Arnold Schwarzenegger having a fight in the same location and the same costumes I went oh they're in the movie for like five minutes right and sure enough okay so a little longer than five minutes but this is weirdly Iron Mask also called Journey to China the mystery of Iron Mask is actually a sequel to another film, a Russian movie called V, V-I-Y, which was a fantasy adventure film that came out in 2014, loosely based on a Nikolai Gogol story that deals with sort of Russian and Russian-adjacent folklore, sort of action-adventure stuff that starred Charles Dance and Jason Fleming in it, that... Um, not Russian actors, Jason Fleming and Charles Dance. So they're like, well, this is a sequel that follows the continuing adventures of Jason Fleming's character, who is like a sort of bumbling cartographer, but with a certain amount of adventurer skills that finds himself getting in trouble. And this whole side plot that involves Jackie Chan as a prisoner being kept as the man in the iron mask type of or, you know, along with the man in the iron mask scenario with Arnold Schwarzenegger as the prison keeper that leads to a very elaborate prop driven staged, very Jackie Chanish fight between the two that I will say was a pretty satisfying overall. Like John, when I'm watching all those sequences, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty cool. This is like a, this is about as good a fight as I can imagine between these two done from a more Jackie Chan perspective. Props, jokes, you know, elaborate stunts. But the rest of the movie is just kind of there. <laughs> what a bunch of nonsense. What a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> Wait, I, my review or this movie? <laughs> this movie, man. So it starts off with this, like, 10-minute prologue about this. these wizards make tea out of dragon eyelashes and evil wizards come and they take the dragon and then they control all the tea. And then you're introduced to the two guys in, both in iron masks or one is in an iron mask and one is yep. Jackie Chan and they're in a tower that's controlled by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then you meet a cartographer who I guess people are mad that he's mapping the world. I People are always wanting to beat him up, but there's no, you can't really figure out why he has a Pokemon um, that he keeps in his horse-drawn carriage. Um, they go on a pirate adventure on a boat, and then like, and then at the like last ten minutes, they're like, "Oh yeah, the dragon eyelash thing." It, yeah, this movie was a mess, just an absolute start to finish, chaotic mess, and yep. interminable. 
it feels like it's never going to end because <laughs> because it doesn't follow a structure of like exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution. Because it has no structure, every scene feels heightened. Every scene plays it like an eleven, and after about fifteen or twenty minutes, that's just noise. After yeah. the hour and forty five minute mark, you are praying for the end. Like, can this, it's over two hours long. Why are all these Hong Kong fantasy movies over two hours long? <laughs> it's so long. This was garbage. It's, it's a garbage movie. Now, it is energetic. It's full of very weird, like, it feels very video gamey in that, like, everything is CG. The camera is constantly spinning around and around and around characters and environments. Everyone is dubbed. It's it's weird. <laughs> the movie's weird. Yeah. I did it, not it, enjoy it. It is so, so strange because at first I'm like, is this, is my track off? Sometimes I still watch movies on my old PlayStation 3 when they're not 4Ks. And I'm like, sometimes when I start it, the dialogue will be slightly off and I got to turn it off, turn it back on again, and then it'll be fine. I thought that was the case because I'm like, what is going on with the lips not matching? And then I started to realize, wait, they dubbed literally every character in this thing because it is all in English, which, you know, okay, you're trying to market it to American audiences. But even like the main stars are they had them come back and ADR their own Mm -hmm. dialogue and it doesn't always match up. And it's really off-putting and strange effect uh the pokemon thing why is that there what that just baffling every time they use it for something you're like okay i guess they wanted they felt they had to have a cute factor but you know it's the thing is like this has all these hallmarks of one of those attempts from a chinese a hong kong film to go oh we're gonna make a mass market wuxia film from the last couple years which are like I get what you're trying to do. You're trying to get international appeal, but it's not working. Except this isn't by the Chinese. It's actually by Russians. It was just most of it set in China and stars a certain amount of Chinese performers. It's very, what is going on with this movie? I mean, literally when they say, I feel like one hand wasn't talking to the other, I feel like one writer wasn't talking to the other because they literally didn't speak the same language. The other thing is like, even the Jackie Chan Schwarzenegger stuff, which in concept, it's like, okay, two action stars that have never had an action scene together. I get it. But then as I was watching it, I'm like, really, they couldn't be more mismatched because Schwarzenegger's action stuff was always based on uh, like gunfights or physical destruction caused by like bazookas and missile launchers or whatever. I mean, yeah. it's not really, he was not a... He was not a fight guy. He was not a Seagal or a Van Damme or somebody like that. So you have Jackie Chan who's doing all the physical stuff and Schwarzenegger's just kind of like lumbering, you know, and, and it, it is satisfying in a, in a small way. The, the downside is I bet you could probably find that entire fight scene on YouTube and like preclude you from watching the entire film. Sure. But that um, would cut right to it because this movie takes the one fight scene and basically divides it up across the film. Mm-hmm. So you keep coming back. But I'll say like, you're right. Schwarzenegger most times like, oh, look, the big guy tried to punch and, and whatever. Like it's like watching a, a Jet Li movie where he fights somebody doing Tiger Styles, a huge bruiser dude and like Jet Li just dances around him. <laughs> yeah. But their their battle here isn't really physical so much as it is with the dialogue and mm. both of them playing very Schwarzenegger is doing a very Schwarzenegger type action character. Chan is doing a very Chan type action character and their give and take on that I thought was actually quite funny. 
it it is intentionally funny and it and it that stuff has it does have a charm to it i will say it does have a yeah, charm that's what you'll give it that's, that's what, what, what you'll but, one thing but okay. I, you know and i i don't know if it's because i didn't see the first one i seriously doubt it because again i think the movie's just I, I think from a story standpoint, it's just busted. It's all over the place. Even if it was a sequel, like the fact that the fact that they, I, I could not, I went an hour into it and I'm like, why, what was that prologue about? Like, why did they show us that prologue? We're an hour in now and they haven't gone, they haven't talked about anything related to dragon eyelash tea. Like what yeah. does that have to do with? Which is also weird. There's this dragon with like who can't open its eyes because its eyelashes are too long. I'm like, how did that evolution? I mean, you can't operate a pair of scissors. Its hands are like claws. They're like, how did evolutionarily wise that happen? Did, did the dragon God go, don't worry, a bunch of Chinese guys will come along and we'll, we'll trim them for you so they can make tea. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's very confusing for me. Anyway, let's move on to our next one, which is getting very serious. We're going to go serious here mm. and talk about, the Lost Weekend, 1945 film noir, directed by the truly great Billy Wilder, who I always go, if you're going to put together a list of the top 10 film directors who've ever worked, I would put Billy Wilder on that list, who tackled so many different types of movies, so many different genres, it's baffling to tr- realize it's all the same guy. This is a movie he did with Ray Milland and Jane Wyman. It's based on a novel of the same t- name. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards and won four of them. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It also shared the Grand Prix Award at the first Cannes, making it one of only three films uh, to win both the Academy Award for Best Picture and the top award at Cannes. It's been added to the National Film Registry of, Le- of Library of Congress as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It's at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. And wow, is it a tough watch. <laughs> All I can say is, I mean, I mean, was this the Requiem for a Dream of its day, John? Do you, you know, think? that's my deal is that sometimes you see an old movie and you can still, I, I happen to, so here's my history with Citizen Kane, unrelated to the, I'll, I'll bring it back around. <laughs> it's greatest movie ever made. Uh, you know, you hear that for so long and finally, like I'm in my 20s and I'm, I'm, full of my own shit and I'm like I'm gonna watch Citizen Kane so let's see what this greatest movie of all time is all about it's like a theatrical re-release and hey Citizen Kane turns out is a really good movie like it it's it's like it's a good movie um just removed from any acclaim or anything like that even removed from the time like I think Citizen Kane's a good movie this movie feels very specific to a time in which there weren't like drug addiction or alcoholism movies and so on the one hand, I understand why it's revered and why it has classic status because of what it is and when it was. But I don't think that it's necessarily like it's and I'm and I, I'm I don't touch alcohol basically at all. So it was not it did not hold up. And that sounds that sounds weird i don't even like saying it doesn't hold up i'm trying to think of some other way to describe it i i just think it's so specific it's like frozen in amber and i think for something that that deals with addiction and this this unspoken addiction so directly and so head on like the film starts and you don't get that slow build the film no. starts and they're literally like you need to dry out and yeah. they're finding alcohol that he's hit, hit, hung from a rope outside his window and so it starts in media res where it's like, this guy's life is already 
on the skids and people are already trying to help him. Um, yeah, he's, he is we're already worst case scenario. He's totally in denial. And the whole thing feels like maybe it's a rebuttal of the very Hollywood films of the type with the delightful martini drinkers and mm-hmm. isn't drinking fun and getting drunk is just funny. And it feels like this absolute, like, fuck that. <laughs> you know, on that like this clever fast talking writer guy is not so charming i do think that wilder's best sequence in the film is when he's at the opera and everyone on stage is celebrating and passing drinks and like you know they're they're doing like a party scene on stage and he's like feverish with hunger for for alcohol like he's watching that scene play out and it's just it's that scene is not just him sitting back and able to enjoy the show and enjoy the music all he can think about are the contents of the glasses that the performers have on stage that i thought was a terrific sequence like a really 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 probably to me my favorite part of the whole movie um but uh, you know it was it was a very it's it's a dark movie it's still a dark it maintains its darkness it's very frank. Um, yeah, it's it's not made to be fun, yeah. and it's not fun. Uh, it, it's very well made, but it is a tough movie to get through as this guy is just drowning in a bottle the whole time and watching Jane Wyland, who it, it's a little bit nonlinear with its storytelling, with like the woman who he'd met right before he started to hit absolute bottom mm-hmm. is determined to figure out how to save him. Uh, and maybe only and only he can make that decision for himself. It is super dark. Uh, eventually, which I if this had been made 10 years later, I suspect it wouldn't have had a sort of ending with hope. But uh, this does. So, I mean, there's a little bit of light at the end of this particular weekend's tunnel. But, yeah, I, I mean, I, I it's not a Billy Wilder film I can see myself returning to, at least not anytime soon. Uh, there is a radio adaptation added on to this with Ray Millen, Millen, Jane Wyman, and Frankie Phelan, which was originally broadcast in 1946. That's audio only, of course. There's an archival episode of Trailers from Hell with uh, Arlington Road director Mark Pellington. And there's a commentary by author and critic Joseph McBride, who is a recovering alcoholic himself, who talks a lot about the history of this. So, I mean, it's an interesting package of stuff if you are definitely... If you are a Billy Wilder fan, and you should be, I think this is well worth your time in seeking out. But don't, I mean, this isn't some like it hot. <laughs> yeah, I, the picture's also really good. I do want to point out that the uh, yeah. the the Blu-ray, it looks nice. It looks, you know, it's super clean, super pristine. Yep. Another film that's being released on Blu-ray now that I've always meant to see, much like The Lost Weekend, it's always been my like, you know, I should get around to that, is Continental Divide. This was a 1981 romantic comedy film with starring John Belushi, who was a ridiculously huge superstar by this point, and Blair Brown, who wasn't quite as much. But she had already done some stuff. She was in uh, the lead actress in Altered States at this point, which is, I, I think, the other main thing. This was directed by Michael Apted, who directed a number of very well-known films, uh, including the Up series, you know, which are the documentary films that follow the people as they're getting older that are still going on. And he did Nell. He did Coal Miner's Daughter. Did a bunch of stuff. But this movie was one I remember. I remember, I can see it in my head, when HBO used to send out these little paper booklets 
oh, yeah. an HBO subscription, right? And you page them, look at the pictures, everything in the descriptions. And my grandmother had HBO. We didn't. So whenever I was there, my mom, my grandmother's house, I'm like, I'm watching HBO. And I remember I'd see it there and go like, well, I, I managed to get see Animal House when I shouldn't have. And I thought that was awesome. But this does not look awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not for fans of Animal House. This was actually the first film released by Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg's production company. And here Belushi's playing a newspaper reporter in Chicago who, you know, undercovers corruption and he's a man of the people and people love him. And he's basically starting to get beaten up by police officers and shit because he's uncovering a lot of corruption. So his editor says, okay, we're going to send you out in the story. You're going to interview this really reclusive doctor who lives way up in the mountains in the Rockies, who's been doing research on American bald eagles, but she's like kind of well-known. So you're going to do a story on her. And he's like, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do this. I'm kind of a party guy. I need to smoke. I need to drink. But of course, even though they're totally different people, they end up, finding a connection together and even falling in love. So I'm mm. like, this is not a Chris movie at 11 years old, <laughs> but to my surprise, I always kind of, I guess because of that early reaction I had, I assumed that this was supposed to be a bad movie and it's not, this was actually by critics extremely well received when it came out. It's just because like me, everyone looked at what it was about when I don't want to see that. I mean, I love John Belushi. Call me when he's back in college <laughs> or singing the blues with Dan Aykroyd. Because <laughs> like this is a kind of a grown up movie and I think it's not a bad one. I don't think it's like one of those comedies that you're like, oh, you'll keep coming back to this the way you will Annie Hall or something. Not that kind of goofy comedy, but there's a lot of charm here. Yeah, it's a little sitcom-y, especially yeah. considering it's written by Lawrence Kasdan, who I don't think of I don't think of his work as being particularly sitcom-y. But I found mm. it kind of sitcom-y. There's sort of like a lot of, you know, men are like this and women are like this and a lot <laughs> of like city livings like this and country livings like this. Like there's That's and true. then some of the gags, like the gag with the cougar and the and the, when he's making roast or whatever, like are very much out of like any camping episode of any sitcom you've ever seen. Um, it kind of sticks the landing in the back half, which I appreciated and, mm -hmm. and makes it where I can't say that I didn't like it, you know, it, but it, I thought it was like pretty middle of the road, um, with, yeah. with, with a little uptick at the end. Um, they don't linger in the mountain stuff as long as you think that they would. And he kind of returns to his regular life and has to deal with the fact that he, the woman that he was in love with is, you know, he basically has left her behind on this mountaintop. Um, and everything from there felt more traditionally Kasdan to me, more about sticky mm -hmm. adult relationships. Um, and that's when I started to grow to appreciate it a little bit more. But overall, I think it's kind of middle of the road. I, it was not, no, it wasn't bad, but I, I can't say that I'm like, <laughs> I'm not I'm not putting in the regular rotation to watch it again anytime soon. I did, however, no, turn around and yeah. watch the Belushi documentary uh, immediately, immediately after I watched this, um, and that was really eye opening. Which, um, I, to be clear, that's not no, the film that's on this disc. No, 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 it's no, not on the disc. But <laughs> I would say that it is uh, I, I, that this the Belushi didn't make that many movies, and it's it would be easy for any collector to get a picture of his life as a screen star because there's only like a half dozen. Um, and you know, so it's, it's, he is a, an actor that it's easy to be a completist on and nothing is 
terrible, even 1941, as bad as it is, is a <laughs> is a remarkable oddity of a movie. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, no, he's like, what, uh, Animal House, Going South, which I've still never seen. Neighbors, uh, which boyfriend. wasn't great. Yeah, Old Boyfriends, which I haven't seen. 1941, which is exactly what you said. It's got some highlights and it's a it's a fascinating misfire of a film. The Bruce, Blues Brothers, which I think is an all-time classic. Agreed. And Neighbors, and that's it. You're like, okay, you know, and then he died. Uh, this was, uh, na- this and Neighbors both came out in 1981 and he this died. This is better than that. Neighbors. I would definitely say this is better than Neighbors, which I found, I know people who love Neighbors, but it's just not my kind of comedy. It's ugly, mean-spirited comedy and I just couldn't get into it. Mm. But this this is like nice. This is a movie you watch with your mom and you both go, yeah, that was nice. You, know, but one you don't thing, really remember a few months later. One thing this and Neighbors have in common is Belushi playing older than he yeah. needs to. And I don't know what the deal was with that. Um, you know, in Neighbors, he's supposed to be like in his 50s. And in this, I think I think when he shot Continental Divide, because did he, is he in the, he's in the 27 Club or did he die early 30s? Uh, let me see. I think he died he in his early. He was 33. He was 33. And like this character is like a celebrity investigative journalist who, the, the John Belushi's real age and how old the character appears on film are at odds with each other. Again, this ca- mm-hmm. this character feels like somebody would be in like his mid forties or, or uh, it's it's interesting that as as he started to branch out that he was playing against age, not just against type but against age as well. True. Uh, so there is uh, a audio commentary by film historians Daniel Kremer and Nat. Uh, Segaloff here, which I believe is new. Uh, and th- I think that's about it here for bonus features other than trailers, but it does have a trailer for w- w- one of their films that they also released that we're talking about next, which is DC cab. <laughs> I'm really curious to know what John ended up thinking of DC cab, but, uh, because this is a movie that I fully blame my own nostalgia for me loving. No, nope. it's a, f- uh, no, no, nope, you don't have to, you don't have to blame your own nostalgia. No. This is goofy and a lot of fun. I love this movie. <laughs> it's offensive as hell at points. You're like, Jesus Christ, movie. But it's just this, it's just a shotgun blast of wildly colorful characters doing insane shit. One like weird set piece after another who just have no rules yeah. thrown at the screen. And it is genuinely a lot of fun in a super doofy way it was one of the uh early films for adam baldwin who i know is an asshole now but at the time he was just the guy we knew from my bodyguard or was that after i don't even remember but he plays a young guy albert hockenberry who's come to dc because his dad was friends with this guy harold who owns the dc cab company he's like maybe i'll go there will get me a job let me start off being a cab driver that played by uh, Max Gale, who's best known for playing uh, Wojo on Barney Miller. If you ever watched that, and most of you probably didn't, but there's just this huge cast of memorable characters here. I mean, Mr. T is the cover guy here. And this is definitely the film outside of Rocky three that Mr. T is best known for. <laughs> uh, there's uh, Gary Busey, playing the world's most offensive human being in this thing, but he is genuinely kind of funny in it. Uh, Marsha Warfield, a very young Bill Maher, 
Paul Rodriguez, the Barbarian Brothers, uh, Irene Cara is in this, Bob Zamuda. A lot of people, you're like, I've seen that. Where would they were from that thing? There was somebody in a television show you saw at some point. But it's just kind of, I mean, the whole thing is like save the cab company that is shitty and doesn't have any money versus the evil cab company that does have money and is corrupt along with the the cab commissioner who wants to put them out of business. It's a very, you know, let's save the rec center, but for, mm-hmm. but rated R. <laughs> I'd seen car wash earlier this year and it was kind of, car wash is kind of formless. It's also written by Joel Schumacher and car wash has all these characters, but it doesn't really have anything to hang the characters on. They're just kind of in the same place at the same time. It doesn't really mm-hmm. have a plot to speak of. Um, and and I, Car Wash didn't stick with me. This, to me, felt like a distillation of what Schumacher was going for with Car Wash. He yeah, has just enough of a plot to hang stuff on, just enough of like the other side of characters beyond their goofiness to be able to go, okay, while they're not realistic, you've turned them just enough to let me know that they have like facets to them. Mm-hmm. I really liked this. And... The, you know, there's nothing in it that's particularly, like, it has a cartoony vibe that that lasts throughout the whole movie. So it's not like there's one really funny scene or one great gag or great lines. It just has a cartoon energy that supports it for the entire time. Um, I, I want to mention Charlie Barnett, who whose story is really sad and, and uh, is one of the, like, scene stealers as Tyrone. Uh, Barnett uh, passed away in the 80s. He was a uh, like a comic who would be in the park, like performing in the park. And the the anecdote goes that he was that Eddie he was supposed to be on SNL, and he flaked because he was worried about being able to read the cue cards. He was um, almost functionally illiterate, and they they had auditioned. They were he was good to go. They were going to have him come back, and he no showed. And the reason he no showed is because he didn't. Again, he didn't want to read cue cards, and then so they. But they wanted a black cast member, so then they sought out somebody else, and Eddie Murphy ended up signing. It's interesting to think of like what you know, what the shape of comedy or SNL or whatever might have been like um, if things had been different for Charlie Barnett. Um, it's it's a, it's sad too to see somebody who so immediately is so full of energy and funny, and Barnett plays like a really probably the most interesting character in DC cab because you think he's a certain way and you find out more about him as the film goes on. And he plays all sides of it really, really well. And it's a shame that we, we lost him, you know, we lost him to the AIDS epidemic in, in the eighties. Um, and it's a shame that we lost Charlie Barnett. Uh, Cause I walked away from DC cab, you know, as much as I liked the movie, also feeling like a little, a little thread of sadness of just like, man, it's a shame we didn't get more from that guy. Um, oh, I com- completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot to mention Grady from Sanford and Son plays the old guy who is a, who, who finds a valuable violin in a cab that everybody is searching for. Cause there's a bunch of reward money, which is what passes for a, a, a subplot in the film. Uh, uh, God, what is the name of that actor? I'm blanking on him right now. Uh, the- Whit- Whitman Mayo. Uh. Yeah, everybody here has played so up. His character is actually the one with the most amount of nuance to him. His relationship as it develops with the main character, who is like almost ridiculously like, like, oh, he's the best guy in the world. He's like, I don't care what abuse you hurl at me. I want to be your friend and I'm going to do the right thing. He's like that guy. You know, it's kind of ridiculous, mm-hmm. but he's 
Adam Baldwin's character is ultimately just the fulcrum point for the plot. Uh, you're much more interested in all these other wacky, colorful characters. The Barbarian Brothers are actually a lot of fun. They're fine. A, I, I, a, this might have been my first time with them, and I've always heard that they were terrible. They were they told they were totally fine in DC Cab. This is a scene where they're like, because he wants to, Adam Baldwin's character wants to ride with all the cab drivers at least once to get their perspective on doing this. And they're driving backwards the whole way because the car's stuck in reverse. And it's a really funny sequence. Uh, they Like the guy's like, hey, God, they're yelling at him in traffic and they get out of the car and the dude's like, oh, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You can get back in your car. It's fine. Because they were, you know, huge. Uh, I'd say they are, or one of them died, I believe, recently. But mm. Anyway, there's not a lot extra here. There's a new audio commentary by critics Daniel Kremer and Scott Tafoya, uh, and then eight radio spots, one of which is in Spanish. But yeah, I fucking recommend this movie as long as you're one of those people who can watch contextually humor that has some offensive sides to it and go, well, it was a different time because it was. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I, I was glad that I didn't go... Yeah, like you do so many times with nostalgia comedies from your, your preteen years. But let's move to our last film, which is a more recent 4K release of the 2004 Michael Mann movie Collateral, starring Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx, with Jamie Foxx as a L.A. cab driver who's trying to get enough money to start his own limo business. Uh, he second fare of the film after a sort of meet cute with a lady in his cab who turns out to be the U S attorney to the central district of California, which I'm sure won't come up again in the end of the movie uh, is Vincent his second fare, who is Tom Cruise playing an older character. They've grayed his hair or maybe they just let it grow. I don't know, but either way he says, look, I'm here for one night. I'm for a real estate deal. I'll give you $600 to drive me to several different locations. He's like, well, I'm not technically allowed to do that. Max is kind of a play by the rules guy, but eventually gets persuaded and almost immediately figures out, holy shit, this guy is a hitman and he's here to kill five different people. Max is not okay with this, but he's kind of stuck. Uh, Vincent is strangely appealing as a bad guy who is like, look, man, Want this all to work out? I like you, Max. You're a good guy. I mean, you're going to get paid. All you have to do is keep your mouth shut and do what you're told. Like, I don't want you to be uncomfortable. He, like, keeps doing shit that, like, I kept going, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? <laughs> there's a, I know people love Collateral, but there's a lot here that what made me do that upon this rewatch. Like, what? And they go through a series of big, elaborate scenes that slowly grow leading up to a huge scene in a big colorful nightclub that also makes absolutely no sense. Uh, and it's all about Max trying to figure out a way to get away from this guy and stop him from killing these people. And yes, it's a beautifully shot movie. Michael Mann, he beautifully shoots movies. Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx are both great in it. Jada Pinkett Smith plays a small role. Mark Ruffalo plays a relatively small role as the main cop who's chasing him. And ultimately, I think it's a a pretty film that tries to pretend like you should take it really seriously, but you really shouldn't because then you'll go, none of this makes any sense. <laughs> I, this was, there were a couple in the stack that I went, Oh, I need to reevaluate that. Of course I already said silent running was a film that I thought I'm going to sit down and I'm going to reevaluate this collateral was one because I know how well regarded it is. And I was like, ah, oh, this will give me an opportunity to, to to give uh, collateral a second chance. Hey, um, I don't like collateral. 
Uh, <laughs> that's, it's that simple. Um, I did give it a second chance. It's slick. Michael Mann movies are always slick. You know, you talk about things not making sense. The scene that I remembered, I'd forgotten the scene that made me the angriest until I rewatched it. And I was like, oh, I'm just as mad. And I remember now the old anger when I first watched this, how this scene didn't make any sense. The scene, the scene, the scene where he goes in, where Tom Cruise sends him and talk to, um, uh, the crime boss guy, the, uh, the actor's name. Played by ha- Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem. Sends him in the club to talk to Javier Bardem and is like, pretend that you were me. I don't know why in the club he doesn't say, I'm being held hostage by this dude and he's out in the car right now. Yeah. Like, that makes get, no sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, and I get that your movie basically, it, your movie doesn't even have to end at that point, but just if you're in that person's shoes... And I'm and I have to go in the nightclub and you watch, you know, you're the hitman out in the car. You watch me go in the nightclub. I'm going right up to him and being like, here's what the deal is. I'm just a cab driver. If you want this guy, he's outside. Like, I don't know why you would just be like, okay, I'll go and pretend I'm you. I guess I'm pretending. It's like, I'm just <laughs> like, this, this is stupid. The scene is stupid. It doesn't make sense for the character to behave like this. Um, I don't, I just don't like this movie. It's, 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 um, there's a lot of stuff that make you have to really suspend your disbelief for. I mean, just the primary premise of the ending of it. You're like, really? <laughs> like, like I'm all for going, okay. When people go, what's the odds of that happening? I'm like, well, if the whole movie is about one coincidental thing happening, then shit like that happens all the time. But that's not what this movie is about. And it, rat in the, it wrapping up depends on a coincidence that happened earlier. And that's where I go, okay, this is hard to swallow. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not sad to say I'm not a fan. I, um, you know, I came at it with an open mind and and thought I, maybe I didn't give it a fair shake the first time. No, I gave it a fair shake. And this, I'm, I just, it's very, you know, it, it also, I think my problem with it too, is it feels so self-important in a way that other action movies don't. And I don't know, I don't know why I wish I could pinpoint better, but I, I think man isn't interested in like almost like the pulp aspects of action. And so it's missing some kind of like, it's missing something that's like letting you in on the fun in a way. It's sort of still maintains a feeling of wanting to be taken seriously on its own terms. And it just doesn't have enough to be taken that seriously, which, which puts the whole like tone and style at odds with what the movie, with what the movie's about and what's happening in the plot. It's, you know, I get why people like it. It's not my thing. I've said it's yeah. not my thing a couple times now, but it's like, I would never say is it's it, bad. Is it your thing, John? It's, it's not it my thing. thing. Well, you know, because oh, okay. there's a difference. When something's like bad, I would never say Collateral is like a bad movie. Oh. I don't think Collateral is like a, even though I have no desire to ever watch it again in my entire life, it's not a one star movie. Um, it's lazily written in terms of plotting yeah. in terms of dialogue. I think it's actually very sharp and very well written. Like all this interactions between Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx are delightful. They're really well written. They're really well performed. Both these guys have a real grasp on who their characters are, but in terms of plot, this thing is just absurdly dumb. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> all right. Well, this is on 4k now, which, you know, I mean, is the way to watch a Michael Mann film. Yeah. Good quality as you can. The issue with that though, even is that this film was shot on, was shot 
digitally at the birth of digital cameras, so it can only sustain yeah. an image so good. Kind of like true, true. That's true. kind of like the 4K version of like 28 Days Later or whatever. It's sort of like, well, you're pushing up against, you're actually going further than the quality of the thing that it was shot on in the first place. Um, well, the advantage here is other than having a 4K version of this, this has a digital copy code. Uh, other than that, it's just, it comes with the Blu-ray, Blu-ray release, previous Blu-ray release. So it's all just the stuff that was on that. That were here, so there's no new audio or uh, other supplements that are here. But it is an upgrade in terms of uh, going to a, the next level for visuals. Yeah, John, I'm going to ask you a hard question now for this week, and I think you know what that question is. Mm-hmm. Uh, is collateral your type of thing? No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm going to ask you, what is the pick of the week? And I know what my pick is, but I'm curious to know. I I think you're stuck between two, like I was, and uh, I'm curious to know which one is the one you're going to go with. Oh, what do you think I'm stuck between? I think you're stuck between Buck Rogers set and Mad Max 4K. No, actually. (gasps) I'm stuck between Mad Max and DC Cab. Wow, okay. Uh, it's so hard to give DC Cab like a full-on recommend, though. I think yeah. you just have to... <laughs> I think I, we, I recommend I think... seeing DC Cab. If you want to yeah. buy it blind, buy it blind, be my guest. It's still worth watching. Uh, my pick of the week is Mad Max. That The 4K on it is just phenomenal. It is a it is one of the best-looking 4Ks I've ever, I've ever seen. Um, so, so good. And the movie ain't half bad, neither. Yeah. I, I'm saying we have to split the difference because like I love DC Cab, but I probably because the 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 total lack of special features largely is like, eh, I mean it's one of those films like really appeals to me is definitely not going to be for everyone. I'm so happy that you were one of the people that it appealed to mm-hmm. as well. But uh, man, we our taste almost always aligns. It's so weird. It is weird. I, like it's shocking when it doesn't. <laughs> I'm like what? <laughs> I like how, like how we're both like extra positive on DC Cab and both like pretty negative on Possessor. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, who are these guys? Where do they come from? I mean, we're not even people. We are not exchanging words about these movies before we watch them either. This is just, I just hand them the movies and that's it. And like, it just ends up that way. But uh, yeah, um, for me, Buck Rogers was like the, the runner up just because I do think they did an exceptional job fixing them all up, putting as much time, uh, you know, getting a commentary for like a shit ton of episodes on here. This is like the, by far the best collection of the stuff. And it's just super fun. It's a cool thing to have, but there's no question that the real winner here is Mad Max 4k, as you said, like exceptional presentation, nice bonus features for a really good movie that demands to be seen in as good quality as possible. Yeah. It's going to be Mad Max 4k. Well, that's it for this week. That's it for shows that come out before Christmas. Thanks everybody for watching and listening. Please like and subscribe wherever you see this. Uh, I don't even know if we're not even like on YouTube, except as a bonus feature for subscribers. If you're a brown coat, $5 a month subscriber or above, you can see the video version of this where our helpful editor, Mike actually puts up images and clips from the things that we're talking about. So you can see what they look like. So that adds bonus. Plus you get to see me and John's delightful mugs mugging for the camera, which we do a lot of. See, John just mugged. Mm -hmm. You missed it because you're not a brown coat subscriber. That's how we stay in money is your subscriptions. Uh, That's how we stay in money. I guess that's true. That's how we stay in business. That's how we're able to put dollars on the floor and roll around on them. Yeah, uh, my big bathtub. I I got a claw-footed bathtub that's just, I use entirely for rolling around in your money. Mm -hmm. How I, I... 
I wouldn't I wouldn't do that because money is covered with viruses. Anyway, uh, thanks for watching or slash listening. We'll be back post Christmas with more stuff. We want to hear from you guys about what the best Blu-rays you got and 4Ks that you got for Christmas. What was the cool shit that you discovered? Let us know. We'll talk to you then.